We're really interested in creating resilient communities. It's seen as the holy grail of development. But actually, resilience is an empty signifier. I'm Gordon Peake, the host of Memorandum of Understanding from the Development Policy Centre, a new podcast series that peers behind the bureaucratic curtain to tell the story of the people, policies and politics of international aid. Building resilience to a changing climate and environment. The integrated community-based risk reduction. The village disaster risk committees. The disaster management committees. There is a predilection within international development programs to lean on big buzzwords for the establishment of committee after committee in villages, rural communities, and towns. I first became interested in these committees, how they are formed, what they do, what their impacts are, when I worked as a consultant preparing some of the shopfront products of development. Assessments, designs, reviews... And my assignments followed a clear formula. Fly to capital city of country X, spend most of the time in said capital, and then a few days out in a rural location where we go to meet the supposed end users of all this work, sometimes referred to in the Argo as key stakeholders. And in each place, we'd meet profusions of committees. And in each village hall could be seen complicated organograms explaining hierarchies and rules. I can vividly recall one meeting that took place down a rutted road at Remesio, just outside of Dili in Timor-Leste. The meeting in question was with a community policing committee, set up in order to be a forum for interfacing between the police and the community. After about an hour, the chief of the village started making theatrical coughing sounds, another started shuffling papers. We wrapped up shortly thereafter, and I inquired as to what the rush was. We're just so busy with people like you, one of the more active participants in the group told me, puffing down on his clove cigarette. We had an NGO early this morning, and there's some rural resilience initiative coming this afternoon, he said, adding pointedly, we're not getting paid for any of this. My impression was that it was exhausting work, with the only rewards being full meeting diaries and the occasional t-shirt or baseball cap with an aid logo emblazoned on it. The other problem is that the answers to the issues being cogitated upon at village levels are global in scale. Issues like climate change, which we saw play out to such tragic extent over the Easter weekend, when that village near Remesio and so many others like it in Timor-Leste were hit with biblical levels of rain. All those resilience meetings were no match for floodwaters, levels that made aerial shots of the city of Delhi look more like Venice, with canals from where there previously were roads. Some of the staff and families of Agora Food Kitchen that we profiled in the first episode of the series have lost everything. And some of the Agora chefs are now cooking at a pop-up kitchen, providing sustenance to those who are going hungry. 
This is a memorandum of understanding the unreasonable expectations aid places on local communities to deal with what are really global problems, problems that other arms of government giving the aid are responsible, in part, for perpetuating. We explore the issue through examining the rules of a set of committees called CDCs, Community Disaster and Climate Change Committees, in the islands of Vanuatu, and the research conducted on them by Dr. Siobhan McDonnell, scholar at the Crawford School of the ANU, anthropologist, legal advisor to the government of Vanuatu. And we begin our story with Siobhan in Kainaki, Tuvalu, in 2019, at the Pacific Islands Forum, where leaders are trying to develop a common position on climate change. The leaders were perched up in these chairs in a concrete hall with open windows, no air conditioning, and on each side out of this hall, on this narrow piece of Funavuti, they could see the ocean. And the optics were extraordinary. It was like the ocean was lapping at their feet and the moment for action was now. I'd been working with the Pacific negotiators alongside Australia and New Zealand for six weeks in the lead up to Tuvalu. And then ahead of the leaders arriving, we had been negotiating night and day to finalise the text. And then Scott Morrison flew in and said the text was unacceptable. And it was this moment in which the truth of this impasse became so incredibly clear. The very human truth of it, the leadership sitting around doing what leaders need to do, which is try and broker a way through. And Ralph Rickenvanu, so he was the foreign minister in Vanuatu at the time, and he wrote about the next forum that was coming that was to be hosted in Vanuatu. And he finished his article in The Guardian by saying, if Australia wants a seat at the table of the forum, they need to come with meaningful commitments on climate change. And I think that is prescient and true. This issue will not go away. This is the issue of existential threat. The Pacific Island leadership have said this is the single greatest security threat to the region. It isn't terrorism, it isn't the fusion centre, it isn't money laundering, it is climate security. People cannot eat out of their land, people are losing houses, they're losing livelihoods, they are dying. Come to the table or don't. With the threats posed to communities by climate change, there appears to be as much emphasis on developing modernist words with unclear meanings as there is action. Words like frameworks, value for money, sector approach. And one such word that stops me completely in my tracks is resilience. We went through the bushfires and we knew that we wanted communities to be resilient. We went through COVID last year and we knew that we wanted our children to be resilient. But actually, at the end of the day, we don't really know what it is and we don't really know how to create it, except that resilience is something that is supposed to happen at the local level. It's something that local people should have more of, villages should have more of, and often development practitioners don't look at what 
is already resilient, what Indigenous practices of resilience are. They often think that to create resilience, you need to have some kind of technical support. You need to do something to that village in order to make it more resilient. Increasingly, across the Pacific, communities are labelled as vulnerable because of these threats posed by climate change. And that's not just the threat to Coral Island atoll nations that are, are facing this increasing threat of sea level rise, but it's also subsistence farming practices that can no longer be maintained as weather patterns change, prolonged patches of drought now across the Pacific, and also this increasing threat of cyclones and cyclone weather patterns that are coming. So the problem with resilience is that it mirrors this discourse of vulnerability. The idea that the whole of the Pacific is vulnerable and therefore what is needed to address this vulnerability is resilience. And this resilience needs to be applied to village communities. So first of all, the whole of the Pacific is not vulnerable, right? There's a problem with that. There's also a problem with saying all women are vulnerable. It homogenises the whole space. It doesn't find the spaces of agency. But also, if you just create this narrative of resilience being at the community, the community just needs to work harder, be made resilience, technical knowledge just needs to be applied, etc., 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 it doesn't address the root cause of climate change, which is actually global carbon emissions. No amount of resilience is going to address that threat. And that's the problem with resilience. Resilience obfuscates, it hides what is the real threat. How do you bounce back when really you're facing all of these impacts over and over again? In Vanuatu, the solution has been to support the establishment of these community disaster and climate change committees, which are tasked with tackling this most existential and ever-present threat, climate change. They're supposed to provide all of the pre-disaster planning, all the post-disaster work, all of the distribution labour, and then all of the climate change adaptation work in a village. So that means safe areas, mapping out of safe areas, working out who the disabled members of the community are, the elderly, making sure everyone's got food, everyone's cared for, everyone's safe before the disaster happening. You've got torch access, you've got food supplies, you've got water supplies, everyone's locked down, particularly for cyclones, also for tsunamis, early warning signals in place, all of those things. Chopping down trees, ensuring road access. These are all the pre-disaster planning requirements. Ensuring everyone's safe through the disaster, then after a disaster, accounting for everybody, making sure food supplies and water supplies are maintained, which can go on for days in some of these locations before any kind of help comes. And then do the accounting for people, right? Doing all the liaising with INGOs, doing all the matrix work, so all of the sheet work, documenting who's where, managing all the distributions, distribution of food, distribution of clothing, distribution of water supply. But for all this hard yakka, no one's getting paid, except the aid workers running the show. To me, the time and labor of people in developing countries should be just as valuable. But there's many who do not share this view. And as Jocelyn Lochman, a graduate student at the ANU, formerly a senior bureaucrat in the Vanuatu government, explained, infusing money can create its own dramas. 
I see committees as a community governance mechanism that should be owned by the community. If we are to pay or enumerate CDCs, for instance, then the WASH committee that's established by another NGO would want to be paid. And if they are paid, then the next committee that's established would want to be also paid. Maybe the chief might say, how come you get to get paid? And I'm a leader in the community and I get nothing for the role that I am playing. And so there would be conflicts within communities. And I think communities establish committees or they put up people to be responsible for their groups because they trust them, because they have integrity. And if you start to pay them, then they lose that standing in the community. So there's a real equity issue there. It almost doesn't matter where you are in the world, whenever you find a development worker, an expatriate worker out in a village, you can bet they're paid. If they're there for days, they'll have some kind of travel allowance. Their labour is being genuinely paid. But is that mirrored at the local level in the labour of local people? Why is it that we expect this scale of labour to be provided on a voluntary basis. One of the committees that I know went out and did this incredible rescue operation off the coast of North Afate. One of the main passenger ships took on water. And so it was this CDC that mobilised people locally and went out and rescued all of the passengers, but they couldn't rescue everyone, so a a number of people drowned. So they also pulled the bodies in and held them for funerals. But then they had a terrible time getting funding back from the National Office for the petrol that they'd used to go out and take the boats out. I mean, this is the micro-level issue of being unfunded. It's not just non-waged, but unfunded in terms of the level of servicing. So CDCs across Vanuatu continue to be rolled out. The INGO has accepted the money and the donor continues to fund. How sustainable are they after six months? How sustainable are they after 12 months? Is it equitable to fund the establishment but to not fund them on an ongoing basis? All of these INGOs have said, we were told we should set them up and then the Vanuatu government would take them over. They don't take them, you know, so there's a lot of politics in this space, right? When you look at the development issues that we have in our country, there's a lot of need there with very few resources to meet that. It won't be sustainable. And sustainability is should be the biggest thing in the mind of any development partner that's going into a community to support communities, to change communities. Because at the end of the day, in my opinion, when an NGO or when a development partner finishes their intervention in that community and folds their mat and leave the community, who is there to pick up the rest of the activities that they have established? In, in saying this, I mean continuing to pay CDCs. It's not going to be possible for the government to meet that. 
it's an ongoing issue for us to even meet our remote communities with services that they will need and that's just not going to be a possible thing for the government to do Despite the good work that some of these committees are doing, the hasty, do it fast, got to establish X number of committees and Y amount of time to fit the funding grant model by which they have been established has led to problems. There's a number of neat Bislama phrases that we heard in the course of doing our research for this that summed it up really nicely. Go slow, slow, no more. Take it easy. Go carefully. Think, think good, fast time. Think carefully first. And probably my favorite is, you hurry up, buy e bugger up. If you try to do it too quickly, it will get messed up. How long do you think the training was to enable these villagers to accomplish this litany of expectations? Two months? A month? Two weeks? A week? There are lots of things that have been introduced into our communities. And for those expectations and for that knowledge to be effective in our communities... I think it's important for them to be trained on on how to implement the knowledge that they have gained. In the CDCs that I looked at, which were all based on the central island of Afate, the process for setting them up, at least at the time, was a very brief process. It was a two-day training workshop. Didn't necessarily involve consultations with wider kind of institutions. It, like the church or the chiefs or anybody else. It was really based on who was in the community at that particular point in time and could come along to the training and learn about disaster preparedness. And at the end of the workshop, a certain group of men and women were chosen to be involved in the disaster committee because they'd been through the training. So in one village, The chief was involved in that workshop and he really supported the creation of the committee and he put in place the chairman who operated with his imprimatur. And that committee continued to work incredibly well and be incredibly effective and be very respected. In the other committee, the chiefs never gave that kind of authority to the CDC. They never recognised it. They never authorised it. And so that meant that when the cyclone hit and when the post-disaster process happened and all of these resources came in and that committee really didn't operate with any kind of authority. And basically across time, people worked to undermine it in various ways. And the chairman of the committee that doesn't work so well says, But we signed this memorandum of understanding with the Red Cross that said that I should be the person and my committee should manage the distribution. Even though we signed this, people are not following that. And they're passing behind the committee, which is the Bislama for subverting the operation of the committee and deciding to manage the distribution in their own way or going directly to the provincial authority or going and getting a chain store for the church and not taking it to the committee. And it was subverted in all kinds of ways. It wasn't respected by the chiefs. It wasn't respected by other powerful leaders. And it really became a major issue for the people who were the members of that committee. I mean, one of the scholars whose work I tremendously admire is Mary Anderson, who talks about the principle of do no harm. 
so that even if development work is not actually doing any good, the most important thing is to make sure that a project or an intervention is, is doing no harm. I think they are often doing good in lots of cases because people really care. You know, in Bislama they say, Bayoli got the heart. You know, and they really care about the places they live in. But people also run out of energy, particularly because they're unfunded and the workload of these committees is enormous. So they can't do good for long periods of time without funding and without training and without resourcing. So they have done amazing good in spite of this. And where they don't do good where they're undermined, they can do real damage to people's reputations and their lives. And again, who bears the responsibility for that? People locally do. You know, it's not donors, it's not INGOs, it's people at a village level who are bearing the responsibility for that. And what happened over time in the community where it didn't work is that these rumours started and the members of the committee became spoken about in these increasingly pejorative terms, as if they were hiding things, as if they were hiding resources from people, that they were acting in their own self-interest or the interests only of their family, that they were not following custom, that they were not sharing properly. You know, these are very damning accusations. And in the end, there was a major distribution and the village decided that their own village committee was not allowed to handle that distribution and they brought in the CDC from the neighbouring village to manage the distribution. So this was incredibly shaming. And the chairman of this CDC could no longer live in that village. And that is a huge impact on someone who was already massively impacted by a cycle. So this is the very human cost of institutions that are not well established, of development processes that are not done well. In international development, sometimes it feels like the solution to everything is to create a new institution. This disaster hierarchy, so from a national government to a national disaster management office to a provincial level to a local community disaster committee, this is replicated all across the world. So you find it in Vanuatu, PNG, Solomon Islands, Fiji, Philippines, Southeast Asia, you know, like you go and you'll see this incredibly logical flow diagram where the resources flow in at the top. It's all so efficient and so effective. And as someone who's really interested in political ecology and as an anthropologist, I'm like, well, this is great, but clearly got no humans and it's clearly got no politics, right? So this is not how it works in practice. I am a firm believer that people closest to the problem have the solutions. And so each community has traditional knowledge about how to prepare for a disaster, how to preserve food so that you can go through the period when there is no food, it's really important for us to recognize that already in the communities, there is enough knowledge and experience to build upon. How much you know, pre-cooking or preparation was there in order to make sure that the relevant customary authorities were on board? Or was it literally, to use 
it's a nautical example because Vanuatu is an archipelago of islands rather than rather than a land base. But we had interviewed Grant Paulson on the podcast, and he talked about the the white truck that came in, and then it went out again. In the yeah. desert, they call them the white seagulls that fly in and then shit on everybody and then fly out again. This top-down approach is one side of the problem. Another is how to cater with the reality that in Vanuatu, in the words of my ANU colleague Miranda Forsyth, a bird flies with two wings. One wing is state authority as represented in something like a CDC, but the second is customary authority composed of chiefs and religious leaders. The state is something that exists in urban centres of Vanuatu, and this is true of Melanesia more broadly. But beyond the urban centres, it's really just an idea more than anything else. The whole of rural Vanuatu is governed by chiefs or customary institutions, so council of chiefs. And what that means is that you know, all of the disputes in people's lives, how they live their daily lives, how they use and access land, all of these things are determined in this way and through these customary processes. But also a lot of the NGO practitioners still don't understand customary tenure arrangements. I mean, I spent years working with the International Federation of the Red Cross, building them a whole guideline to customary land arrangements so that they could begin to understand the fabric of what that was and how that worked for development projects because there were projects that were going in on land that was disputed, entire wash projects going in for villages over disputed land, and then the investor who owned the land would evict the entire population and hold the wash project, which is just a disastrous outcome for everybody. And it just comes from an incredible lack of understanding around institutions and arrangements. And it's similar at a local level, right? If you want support for your community disaster committee, you need local level buy-in. You can't just create new institutional arrangements and anticipate that they're going to be supported by powerful leadership in all kinds of different ways. If the powerful leadership don't support it, you can Bet <laughs> in times post-disaster when resources become really fraught and when people are really concerned about where their next meal is going to come from and are living under tarpaulins and are worried about their children and their grandchildren and their families, that they will subvert your authority. If they haven't worked to set you up and if they don't care about who you are, they are going to work to undermine you. That is very human. That is not just about custom. For Vanuatu communities, custom is very important. It's paramount. And with my work with NGOs going into communities, that's something I've come to appreciate and acknowledge. Respect is a big thing for communities in Vanuatu. I cannot go into a community and just go straight in and and start talking to the communities about what I had come to do. I would have to follow community protocols. I would have to go through the chief to let him know what my intentions are and to get his permission to speak to his community. And that is really important for any development 
partner or any development intervention to work in communities. It's really critical to have the chief's support because it's through him that the communities will be able to have the buy-in into whatever intervention that you are in there for. And often I think we have conflicts sometimes and disagreements when we go in without acknowledging the community leadership structure that is already in existence in the communities. And we have to remember that these are structures that have been there for a long, long time. And I have seen the respect that chiefs command from their people. There may be communities where people disagree with their chiefs, but they do command respect and they do have that authoritative voice in their communities. And so custom, for me, is very important and it needs respect from anyone who wants to do any development work in the communities because without recognizing that, I don't think we will be very effective in what we want to do. There are some projects that local communities really want, that they've petitioned donors for for years, but there are other projects that are just dreamt up and they're dreamt up without very much consultation or engagement at all. And often they're dreamt up around some of the buzzwords we're talking about, you know, around resilience or around, you know, the buzzword before that was empowerment. What does that look like? Name it for me. Show me. How is it measurable? What does it look like across time? So we have so many of these, right, and they percolate around our development discourse and they get caught in the system and they flourish partly because they are so unmeasurable. The one that I'm, I hear all the time at the moment and that is also part of the resilience discourse is this build back better But the problem with this build back better kind of idea is that it articulates all of these aspirations as if they're a possibility, as if people have the capacity to do that at the local level, this building back better. And again, it doesn't address any of the structural inequalities that are present. You could build back the best house, but is it really going to withstand the climate age that we're moving into in the Pacific? I mean, there are some real pragmatic problems around these sets of discourses. And people are sometimes afraid of saying, this doesn't work. I often think of the story of the emperor's new clothes. When my father used to read me this story, it was one of my favorite stories when I was a child, but I didn't really fully understand the meaning of it because I couldn't understand why all the people in the king's court didn't say this jacket of finely woven thread is actually not a jacket of finely woven thread. And it often strikes me that the story of the emperor's new clothes only makes sense whenever you become an adult because you actually have all the pressures that people are under and did not report. So whenever the INGOs that you present your research to sort of nod their head and say, thank you for putting into words that what our concerns are, do they go up to the funder and say, we've got a problem here? Or are they kind of prisoners within the system as well? Because it's all project-based funding. The negotiations over these arrangements happen Canberra to Melbourne, or they happen Auckland to Wellington, or they happen Washington DC to Washington DC. 
In Port Villa, people are just trying to implement things that have already been decided. So the way in which there's a capacity to influence often feels very stripped away from anybody who's located internal to country. And yet all of these INGOs have commitments to localization. When you look at what is happening, internal to country offices, you don't get the sense that there's that capacity to be able to push back around conversations to head offices. And that's the thing that also strikes me about these CDCs, that Vanuatu, which is this place of this tremendous efflorescent legal pluralism, where chiefs work differently in place to place. So it's not as if you go up to the north of Vanuatu and you're going to see it the same as the south of Vanuatu or, or even within villages or within islands itself. But yet there's a cookie-cutter approach to these CDCs that you take them out and you do the same all over Vanuatu. Because one of the things that's striking about these CDCs is that they have an equality of gender composition. Equal number of men, equal number of women. It is overly simplistic to say if we have an equal number of women and men on a committee, we're going to create better outcomes for women. So maybe across time you do create cultural change that way. But the most important work that you can do in this space is work that doesn't set up women to fail and doesn't create spaces in which women themselves are subjected to violence. There are a lot of examples across the Pacific of women being placed through poorly thought out schemes in positions in which they've been made more vulnerable, particularly CDCs in EPI where women were placed in the position of being chairs of CDCs where in the post-cyclone PAM period chiefs refused to follow the CDC. They refused to allow a woman to manage the distribution because it was a woman. So sometimes that simplistic gender matrixy is not in and of itself going to create the gender equity outcomes that we all want to see. Sometimes the best way to find spaces of women's agency is to look at how women themselves create their own spaces for agency. So rather than imposing Western ideas of formal equality onto societies, we need to look at the spaces of agency that are already there. And I want to say this as an Australian woman, we don't have the answers for gender equality. We have just watched a terrible display in our national parliament of disregard for the voices of women around issues of women's violence. So the last thing that we can do is preach into the Pacific on these issues. Siobhan's comments brought to mind words from the American writer F. Scott Fitzgerald, who said, quote, The test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposing ideas in mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function, end quote. By that criteria, governments such as Australia and others have the most exceptional brain power. And nowhere is that intelligence more on display than in relation to climate change. Australia is helping out with the aftermath of climate change in the region when being the major actor 
responsible. That's like holding the hose with one hand and starting a fire with the other. You know, there's really a critical difference between Australia using the language of Pacific family and of often being the development partner of choice in the Pacific and of doing projects and programs that are really valued around education and health in particular on the one hand and yet at the same time creating what is really an existential threat to people's entire way of life across the Pacific, which is the threat that's caused by climate change. So when Pacific leaders sit across the table from Scott Morrison, they are critically aware that Australians produce some of the highest rates of carbon emissions of any country per capita in the world, that we have some of the weakest national contributions, that he hasn't committed to net zero by 2050. They know it. They know it to be true. And recently the Australian government, through the High Commissions, put out a series of letters that can really best be described as propaganda, which were really along the lines of, hey, Pacific family, these are the great things that we do on climate change. They were taken out almost as advertorial pieces in newspapers in Pacific countries, and they were met with silence in many countries. But in the Solomon Islands, one of the leading politicians actually took umbrage with this and said, you treat us as if we're stupid, you know, as if we do not follow Australian news, as if we do not know the actual position that you represent in international forums of your entire way in which you're dependent on the fossil fuel industry, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so the Pacific is so aware, they are so aware that we speak the language of Pacific family and yet at the same time we are literally undermining their entire way of life. And it's not just a disconnect, it is absolutely untenable as a position. Shibon was talking about the Pacific Islands, but as we spoke to each other, my mind wandered over geography and time to Tsarist Russia to a man called Grigory Potemkin. He was the man who ordered the construction of empty villages in order to give an impression of progress. His surname is an adjective now for creating an appearance that flatters to deceive, to show that something is being done when in fact much less is. And so the question is, are these CDC's Potemkin structures to address climate change, or is there more substance to them than that? This is Memorandum of Understanding. I'm Gordon Peake, the producer is Julia Bergen, and music is from Luther Knut. You can find Siobhan's article and more words on CDC's in the show notes, as well as a link as to how to support Timor-Leste Agora chefs in their pop-up kitchen. We go to air every fortnight and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to get your feedback and appreciate it so much if you could leave us a review or rating. Follow us on Twitter at MOU underscore pod. See you in a couple of weeks.